0: Tanya is a, uh, it's a deep book. And that's, the tr- that's been the trademark of our classes, that we go deep. We don't uh, do the Tanya in a nutshell. On the other hand, we don't drag it on, so we keep the pace. So we get through it, our pace is a chapter a week, and we do the best we can to encapsulate the message and the takeaways from, uh, from this chapter. And it's a very special week to be studying the Tanya now, because in two days from now, in fact, tomorrow night, Thursday night on the Jewish calendar, is the 24th of Tevet. It's the day the Alter Rebbe who wrote the Tanya passed away. A yard site of any person is special. Their entire life is said to be uh, kind of summarized caught into this one day and especially when we're talking about the Yartzad of a Tzaddik who has influence on so many, so many of his followers the potency and the spiritual energy of that day is that much greater and especially when it comes to the Alter Rebbe who wrote the Tanya who's literally transformed the life and the outlook of the entire Jewish world since the day it was written his yard site is surely a day which carries intense uh, special significance, spiritual significance for each and every one of us. And by studying his teachings, which is what we do here, we're studying the Alter Rebbe's fundamental work of the Tanya, we actually tune in, in the deepest ways, to the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe himself has an essay later in the Tanya, not, not in the first part, but he explains that although it's counterintuitive to think that way, people might think, You get a better connection when you're physically present with the Rebbe versus just learning the books. And the Alti Rebbe says that in fact the opposite is true. Because when the Rebbe is is only in his physical state, you're limited to the way he can manifest on the physical level. He could only speak at the time that he could speak, he could only meet you when he could meet you. Everything is bound with limitation. But when you can transcend that limitation and and access him through his Torah, you actually reach a deeper part in him, the unlimited part, the transcendent part, the part of the Alter Rebbe that could meet us here in Sherman Oaks 200 years after he passed. We tune into this greatest of energies and tonight the schus of the Alter Rebbe should stand us in great stead as we approach chapter four. You. you know, I just want to say one story of the Alter Rebbe. It doesn't it's have amiga, to do... Amiga alter Rebbe. Huh? Instead of the Amiga threes, it's Amiga Alter exact, Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but uh, just, just because it's his yard set tomorrow night, and I, I want to share this story, it's going to tie in a little bit to our theme, but it's a story that stands alone. The Alter Rebbe, decides for his intellectual genius and his teachings... He also was very preoccupied with the physical needs of his people. And he went to great lengths to collect tzedakah, simple tzedakah for people in need in his own community and especially in Israel. Alter actually founded what we know today as Kol Chabad, a, a massive organization for tzedakah in Israel. He founded it to support the needy of the, of the Holy Land. And there was one occasion where he came to visit a certain city to do some uh, fundraising. And... This city was well-known for having a miser, a real stingy guy. I don't like this it, guy, that's funny. <laughs> no, it's good. There was a miser in this town, he was particularly known for his stinginess, and he had this custom. Anybody that came to him to collect money, he would give them a rusty penny. Not a penny, because that's not Russian currency, but a rusty, uh, whatever it was, ruble. Okay, a kopeck. yeah. A rusty coping, okay, and that was his thing, and of course that's ridiculous. Everybody would just throw it back at him, and he wouldn't give you a cent. He was known. This this guy, everybody knew about him. The Alter Rabbi came to this town. He called the two prominent rabbis that were there, who were going to lead him around from house to house, and he said, "Hey, first I want you to take me to the house of this miser." They go, Rebbe, it's useless. What, what, what do you think you're going to do there? This is, please, don't go, don't don't, don't put us through this. We know what's going to happen. He said, I, I insist. And they arrange the meeting the next day. They find themselves on the door, doorstep of this guy. Knock on the door. He opens the door. Wow, rabbis, please come in. This was his play, you know, every time. They come into the living room, beautifully decorated living room. They sit down. What are you here for? And the rabbi begins to tell his story. There's widows and orphans who need money and uh, to marry off the children to make ends meet. And he goes, wow, this is such a touching story, please accept my humble donation. And he pulls out of his pocket the, the kopeck, <laughs> and he hands it to the Alter Rebbe. And the rabbis are going, we knew it, it's a waste of time. But instead of the usual reaction, the Alter Rebbe actually stood up, warmly went over to this miser and starts shaking his hand, thank you so much, Mr. Solomon, for your incredible donation, I'd like to write you a receipt of your generosity, and he begins to write him a document full of blessings, and, and and you name it, just everything good for this man, thank you so much, and all the time smiling, and he hands it over to him, and uh, and he says, okay, we gotta be on our way, we have a lot of collecting to do, to do today, I'm out. Turns around, they leave the house. As they're walking down the steps, they hear the door open behind them. The rich man is there. He says, rabbis, please, back into the house, I need to talk to you for a second. They come back in. And now instead of sitting relaxed, the rich man's actually pacing back and forth and he says, it wasn't good enough, it wasn't good enough, I gotta give you more. How much do you need for, to, to help all these people that you want to help? Alter Rebbe says, well, if you ask, it's 5,000 rubles. He says, okay, I can give a 1,000. Pulls out of his pocket a wad of ruble notes. The rabbis were, were beyond, they, they, were, they, were, they thought they lost something. They, they're daydreaming. Like They wanted to just grab the money and go. If he's going to change his mind, who knows? And the Alter again goes over to him. He's shaking his hand. He's smiling. Thank you so much. And he's writing him a receipt with Hebrew blessings and all kinds of stuff. And he gives it to him again. And he says, okay, we got to go another 4,000 to collect. They're out the door. The door shuts. They're coming down the steps. And the same thing. The rich man's back out. He says, rabbis, we got to come back in. They come in. Rabbis. I want to give you the full $5,000, 5,000 rubles. And again, the scene repeats itself. Yalta Rabbi thanks him and, and they're on their way. As they walk out, the two rabbis said to Yalta what, what did you just do here, a miracle? I mean, how, how did you even, how is this even possible? He says, you guys don't understand. No Jewish soul is truly stingy, but you never gave him the opportunity to experience the joy of giving. Everybody that he gave the penny to threw it back at him. He never gave him the opportunity to feel great about giving. And tonight what I, what I was able to do was to unlock that part of his soul. And so generosity poured forth because that's what a Jew really is. So that's the opener. And uh, either it will tie in or it won't. But it's a good story that stands alone, and we have to really appreciate the value of a Jewish soul. That's, that's the message, because many people underestimate it. And the Alter Rebbe was able to show and bring out the beauty of this, of this Yiddish and Neshama. And it is the Neshama that's our topic tonight. We've been on this for two weeks already, chapters two and three. We've talked about the essence of the soul, we've talked about the body, the functions of the soul. And tonight we're on to topic number three, the expression of the soul, or the way I like to call it as the soul communicates. Chapters four and five, they really go hand in hand. And so we're, we're kind of doing a disservice by doing chapter four separately and chapter five, we'll have to do a little recap next week. It's just the nature of the chapters, they go, they go in tandem but I'm gonna do my best to, uh, to separate the discussions and we'll be able to keep focused on, on, on what it is chapter four contributes to the Tanya. But uh, this is what it is. It's the third dimension. It's not the essence, it's not the body, it's the communication of the soul. The Alter Rebbe calls them in the Tanya Livushim, garments. And like every metaphor, the reason why they're called garments is because your character you can't change. Your makeup you can't change. But your clothes you can take on and put them off at will. In other words, they're 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 in your control. So in that sense, the three garments that the altar Rebbe names in this chapter are the three elements of every person which are completely in our control: thought, speech, and action. And if I can give a little different twist, thought. Is the way a person communicates with himself, speech, the way a person communicates with other people, action, the way a person communicates with the world and other things, because that's, that's the nature of it. Thought only happens in you, speech is to the other person, only people can understand speech, and action is everything else. The table can understand my action, this is my relationship with it. When I pick it up, put it down, set it up, eat the food. These are all things that are communications with other things. And uh, this really the, the discussion we're going to have tonight about the three garments really sets the stage for what it is the Alter Eber wants to really bring out in the Tanya. Because ultimately the battle of the Beinoni, the in-between man that we talked about a couple of weeks back in chapter one the real deal with him is going to be that his character will never change. His mind and heart will never change. He'll never stop feeling certain ways. He'll never stop desiring certain things. But he will be able to control his thoughts, speech, and action. He will be able to control whether he lets lets himself contemplate, think about something, speak it, or do it. And so in this way, it's actually very central. How did you say that in Hebrew? Machshava, dibur, ma'aseh. (laughs) Chabad was last week, was the intellectual faculties of the soul. The way chokhem adas is the way you understand something. That's all in the intellectual. This is this is outside. This is machshavah, uh, dibur, masa, thought, speech, and deed. And they're basically the periphery of the soul. They're, they're they're the they're the outside relationship aspect of the soul. And uh, so, because it's the divine soul, everything is in the divine context. And so, even when the Alter Rebbe describes thought, speech, and action in this chapter he talks about it as the thought, speech, and action of Torah and mitzvahs. In other words, he doesn't even give any other room for anything, because we're talking about the godly soul. And So when the godly soul thinks, it only thinks Torah. When the godly soul speaks, it only speaks Torah. When the godly soul does, it only does mitzvahs. So you'll read the chapter, he actually labels it that way. The godly soul has three garments, thought, speech, and action of Torah and mitzvahs. Boom, right there, because that's what it is. And he says, when the godly soul engages its thought in thinking about Torah thoughts on any level that it can, then the machshava, the thought, is united with God. When he speaks about the Torah with a friend, engaging in conversation, Talmudic debate, then he's engaged his his speech in, in, in godliness. And when he does a mitzvah, shakes the lulav and puts on tefillin, he's engaged his action. And this segues into a very interesting conversation in the Tanya. And it's, it's when you examine the map of the Tanya, in other words, you can see it all in context, it, it almost seems like chapters four and five are on a tangent. Because it doesn't have to do directly with the souls and the struggle, and it, it, it is kind of a a side conversation. But it becomes central in understanding how the godly soul works, and we're going to tie it a little bit tonight, and mainly next week when we finish chapter 5, we're going to tie the whole circle together. But what happens is in, in the rest of the chapter is that the Alter Rebbe says, by the way, I just want you to know something. The thought, speech, and action that you engage in Torah and mitzvahs, they might seem to you like something outside of your soul. In other words, I got the essence of my soul connected to Hashem, and then I got a little garment outside of me, Torah and mitzvahs outside of me, but it's not really my essence, it's not really on the level of the essence of my soul, I'm really much higher than the Torah and Mitzvahs. And the Altar Rebbe posits that in fact the opposite is true. The Torah and Mitzvahs in this physical world are actually on a higher level than your very soul is in this world. And that's because he bases it on a Zohar. The Zohar says, Torah and Hashem are completely one. Even the way Torah has come down to be physical intellect and understood by people, it retains its godly identity versus the soul, which although it could be traced back to Hashem, but it isn't aware. It's hidden from us, this idea of being a piece of God. I mean, look at us, this is how, we, we see ourselves as material beings. Yeah, there was a, it uh, <laughs> was a chassid, Reblazer was his name, he was a chassid of the Alter Rebbe, And they once asked him, why do you play, like, why do you see such an emphasis in chassidus? Because he, he wasn't a chassid originally. He lived in Israel, and he was not a follower of chassidus, and he would love to engage in Torah thoughts and Torah study, and one time a disciple of the Alter Rebbe came to visit Israel and uh, engaged him in something and he gave him over a deep teaching from the Alter Rebbe and he was immediately struck. And he said, where did you hear this? He said, well, I heard it from my master, the Alter Rebbe in Liadi. He says, I got to go meet this man. He packed his bags, literally packed his bags and made the journey to white Russia. Endured incredible hardships and suffering. He lost money, gained gave money, he broke his leg and, and he made it there. And he became a devout follower of the Alter Rebbe. And so they asked him like, what was it that that captured you? And he said a great line. He said, when I lived in Jerusalem, I used to pray and learn. And I used to think, how will God ever be able to come up with a paradise big enough to host me and all the great things that I've accomplished? How will, it's unfathomable to me. I'm doing so much good. How will he create a Gan Eden big enough for me? And when I came to the Alter Rebbe, I discovered the opposite question. How could the infinite, omniscient and omnipotent God find room for a materially animalistic person like myself? His perspective completely changed. Humility. And, and uh, it, it, was a complete, it, was, it was a game changer for him. And so, in this way, the soul kind of loses its access to its essence when it comes down here. And I'm going to unpack this in a second, but just to make the point. Torah and mitzvahs retain their revealed connection to Hashem even as they become physical. And he quotes a midrash, a fascinating midrash. There's a midrash in a book called Yalkut Shimoni where he has a whole chapter on why the Torah is compared to water. So Torah was compared to water and like 15 analogies that he draws between Torah and water. One of them is actually fascinating. It relates to our our class. It says, uh, just like water can go droplet by droplet, and then in the end, it accumulates to a rushing stream, so too with Torah. You start with two halachas today, two halachas tomorrow, and before you know it, you're a gushing stream of Torah. One chapter a week. And before we know it, we got the tanya. It's a big, it's a a beautiful analogy. But another analogy he draws is like this. He says water descends from a high point to a low point. The nature of water is when it hits a, a precipice, it goes down. Torah is the same way. What does that mean? Torah travels down, okay? What's the message there? The altar Rebbe says something deep. He says water, when it goes down, it's the same water that was up here that now goes down here. Huh? Gravity. Gravity, gravity pulls it down, but it's the actual water. The same water that was up there is is now the water that's down here. Right, versus versus let's say an idea. If I communicate an idea to you, there's the way it is in my head, and then it has to filter down to your head And then maybe it achieves a lower status there. Or for a child, this is especially apparent. For an adult to create, to explain an adult concept to a child, everything has to be filtered. And so the idea loses some of its essence. But water, he says, the water that's up there is exactly the one that's down there. The Torah that was up there by Hashem is the very same Torah, the very same infinity down here. And that's what makes Torah and mitzvahs different than the human soul. Because the human soul did get filtered. The human soul did lose some of the awareness of, of it being connected to Hashem. He goes even further, and again, I'm, I'm only giving half a conversation because chapter 5 is the, is the full dimension of it. But I'm just going to say what he says in chapter 4. He says, more than Torah, Mitzvahs have godliness revealed in them More than Torah Because mitzvahs Are a literal way to experience God Torah is an intellectual exercise It engages And next week we'll see the flip side of this I'm going to turn it all on its head next week But for this week Mitzvahs have a deeper connection You're literally experiencing God in the physical You hold an esrig This is Hashemliness You, You eat salmon and you make a bracha the Alter is in the Salmon, Hashem is in the Salmon, this is, this is the, it, it becomes spiritual. You, you, you eat matzah, you put on tefillin, you tzitzis, the physicality becomes Hashem. And he said, Alter says, don't, don't worry about the fact that it's physical. So how could physical be infinite? He says, imagine you had a king. This is the end of the chapter, he says, imagine you had a king and you hugged the king. Does it make a difference if the king is wearing one suit, a coat? 10 layers, no layers, you're hugging the king. The flip side, if the king hugs you, does it matter that he's wearing one sleeve, two sleeves, no sleeves? It's the king embracing you now. Yes, the mitzvah's got a physical form. The esrug, however it looks in the spiritual realms, came down into the yellow citrus that's you know, shaped this way. But you're hugging the same king. You're experiencing the same God. And so in that way, mitzvahs carry a revealed sense of of being connected with Hashem. And he ties it in to something we say in Pirkei Avot. Ethics of our Father says, Better or more beautiful is one moment of repentance and good deeds in this world than the entire life of the next world. Really. One moment in this physical world better than the entire olam haba? How could that be? And the Alter Rebbe says it's true because whatever insight the soul will have into Hashem in the world to come is only a ziv. It's only a ray of the true infinity of Hashem. When you access Hashem through a physical mitzvah, you're accessing the essence of Hashem. One moment of essence is worth more than all the ray, all the reflection, in the world. And if I can, I'm gonna go a little Kabbalistic now. And we're gonna explore this in detail in chapters 51, 52, 53. the final three chapters of Tanya. Get, this, get to this idea. Every single being that Hashem created in the universe has a center. The human being has a center, it's the brain. The world as a whole has a center, The center of the world is seen as the Bet HaMikdash. The holy temple is called the godly center of the world. And it says in Kabbalah that not only does the physical world have a center, but even the spiritual realms also have a center. Somewhat of a spiritual Bet HaMikdash. Where over there, all the godliness and the energy for that world is revealed and from there it filters out. And Kabbalah says that when we do Torah and mitzvahs down here in this world in our lifetime, we deposit... Besides for the things that we do here, we deposit energies in the higher realms, and the higher worlds, to which our souls will come back to in the afterlife. But we only make a deposit into the Bet HaMikdash. Our deposits go into the temple of the world, so to speak, and when our souls come back and are back to re-experiencing the Torah and, and Hashem, they're able to get some of the greatness of the energies which we've deposited in the temple. But the energies never leave the holy temple. They only come out through windows. Like in the physical temple, there was actually windows. The Torah describes them as windows being narrow on the inside, wider on the outside. It's counterintuitive. When you're bringing light into a room, you wanna make the window wider on the inside, narrower so it can carry further. But in the holy temple, it was the opposite, even physically. And the Medrash says, why? because you think Hashem needs the light of the world. He provides light to the entire world. And so it was, it was a metaphor to show that the temple shines forth. And so the same thing in the spiritual realms. There's windows that are, so to speak, faceted in the ways where they're narrow on the inside, wider on the outside, you can get a glimmer of the experience that you've created through your mitzvah. But the actual experience happens in this world. So no matter how much you're gonna get in the next world, as the Kabbalah explains it, you're only gonna get a glimmer from the temple, a ziv a ray of the shechina. But here is where you actually access the essence of Hashem. And so in that way, the Torah and mitzvahs, which seem to be only the garments, that's the way my soul communicates, it's doing the mitzvah, it's talking the thing, it's thinking the holy thought. Wouldn't that be seem to be more outside of me? No, it is outside, but it's a deeper connection. That's where the conversation ends in the chapter. Now, I want to unpack it a little bit because I think there's something deeper going on in this, and this is what I want to communicate tonight to really know what's going on in this, in chapter four of the Tanya, the way I see it. Again, we we can't say it enough because the Tanya is like the Torah, okay? There's interpretations. Everybody has a different takeaway, And each of you have a different takeaway as well. But we just present it in one way, in the ways that we can walk away with something practical and relevant. So this whole conversation about garments of the soul and the garments being deeper, having deeper access to Hashem than our own psyche and our own soul, I want to unpack this a little bit. And I want to use a metaphor that's already come up for us. In chapter 2, in order to explain the essence of the soul, we gave the metaphor of a father and a child. How the father is able to communicate and transfer his essence to the child It isn't just a part of him a bit of him in the sperm is, is contained the entire identity of the father the pregnancy is what creates the gradations in the different limbs and different parts of the body but ultimately they all trace back to the very same source and in that way we're called hashem's children in that every soul is ultimately connected to the essence of Hashem. When we talked about it in chapter 2, I didn't give another twist, and I want to give another twist tonight to this metaphor. And uh, if you haven't thought about this yet, it's a game changer. This concept that I'm about to say is a game changer. The greatest gift that a parent gives to his child. The greatest thing that a father passes on to his son or daughter together with the fact that he gives him his essence is he gives him independence. The very fact that your child is a different entity, a different being, separate from you, is the greatest gift you give them. It's ironic. Because you give them everything of yourself, but you give them the complete freedom to detach. And I'm not talking about lifestyle. That's of course another thing. Even physically. You give them their being as a separate being. There's something outside of you. And it's the same gift we got from our parents and they got from their parents. The fact that when essence creates essence, it always leaves room for independence. It's a mind blowing idea. It, of course, it's, it's, what, it's exactly what allows for a child to live a life in complete inconsistency or even antithetical to his parents which is the beauty of life, okay? Sometimes it's heartbreaking, and I get that. But the idea of making your own choices, this is part of the package of independence that a parent gives to his child. Both physically, mentally, psychologically, in the psyche and the makeup of the person, it's a separate being. And we get it from Hashem. This is the the other piece of the father-son metaphor in Hashem. When Hashem created souls, together with giving us His essence, He gave us independence. He said, I'm going to make souls that are going to be separate from me. You know, mystically, we call this free will. This is the basis for the concept of free will. The idea that Hashem created a being that, so to speak, is outside of Himself. That's why when kids are born, they they, they don't feel their identity as a child, the opposite is true. Scientifically, even, children first feel themselves and they feel that they're the center of the world. If anything, you're here to serve us <laughs> for the first couple of years until they realize, that, hey. Well, about yeah, right? <laughs> to like, oh, mm-hmm. not everyone's thinking about me? Okay. But it, it, it's, it comes out that way. Because, and in the same way with, with us. Hashem creates the soul with the gift of free will. With the gift that you're not going to have an awareness of your identity. Imagine if our souls came into the world with the complete identity of being one with Hashem. There couldn't be anything. There couldn't be free will, firstly. We feel compelled to to act in a godly way. The very fact that we feel ourselves as material beings and, and disconnected beings and beings that have to discover godliness and divine consciousness, that is the mechanism of separation that Hashem put into being when He first created souls. And I believe that's the question that's the underpinning of chapter four. Why does a Jew need Judaism? If a Jew is connected at one in essence to Hashem, why do we need other factors to create the closeness? Why do we need Torah and mitzvahs to bring, to bring us together with Hashem? Aren't we the essence? Aren't we, aren't we together? Aren't we one? Aren't we part and parcel of each other, a package deal? And the Altairba wants to explain to us that in fact, that's the very difference between you and the Torah and mitzvahs. You have been created with the separation, the disconnect, the lack of awareness, the lack of identity. Your source is hidden from you in this world. The soul cannot feel that it's godly. If it did again, it wouldn't wouldn't be able to do otherwise. And the Torah and mitzvahs, they have a revealed, overt, conscious connection to Hashem. That's why they're higher in that sense, because the essence of our soul got hidden. We tap into the Torah and mitzvahs, this is where revealed godliness is. Now, Hashem is shining back into the system. Now, godly consciousness comes in. Now we can start feeling. And by the way, it's not just now we get godliness into our life, now we can become aware of our inner source. In other words, we light up that connection that we lost. Shoot. Torah and mitzvahs. So when you're doing Torah and mitzvahs, by just doing Torah and mitzvahs, you may or may not get feelings. By doing them, eventually that creates some sort of pipeline to. Okay, you're 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 not exactly asking the question, but I'm I'm going to ask it for you, because maybe some people are embarrassed that I might scream at you if you ask the question. What do you mean Torah and mitzvahs are revealed godliness? I don't feel it. Right. Right. Yeah, that, that's kind of I'm just going to rephrase that in, in, your, in this way what do you mean Torah and mitzvah revealed? I, I, it's like I'm, I'm lecturing for half an hour and nobody wants to ask it because right asked Huh? Yeah. You, you actually <laughs> did play. okay yeah in other words what am I saying godliness is hidden in my soul but it's revealed in mitzvahs like what are we talking about in the 1960s the Rebbe he was, was accepting private audiences still and uh, many times there'd be groups of students that would come to visit him and challenge him with all their questions he would take questions and he would answer them and for some reason at that time also many intellectuals uh, we have recorded stories of their visits with the Rebbe and their interactions with him and their, also the questions that they posed to him and there was one particular guy who came to visit the Rebbe And uh, the Rebbe was talking about the value of adding in mitzvahs, just doing mitzvahs and doing even more mitzvahs. When you're doing one, do more. And the Rebbe was giving an analogy to a tie. He said a tie, it adds, it, it enhances, or you have a guy who's dressed well, he's wearing a sharp suit, and then he adds in the tie and it gives, the, it gives a new twist, an added splendor to the whole uniform. And so he was saying the more mitzvahs that you add, it, it's not just like you do one mitzvah, okay, I got to fill in now, I got my suit on, I'm good. No, because you want to also have the tie. It gives the additional feel to the outfit. And so this guy said to the rabbi, that's a nice analogy, but it doesn't work for the guy that doesn't do anything. Because if you don't do anything, that's like a naked guy putting on a tie. A tie doesn't enhance him, it actually makes him look more ridiculous. So how do you, I guess he was telling the Rebbe, how do you tell me to start doing one mitzvah? What's the value there of me putting on a tie when I'm not wearing any clothes? So the Rebbe, this is, he said, good point. But if a man who is naked puts on a tie it will awaken him to the fact that he's naked. Isn't it great? You put on the tie. You see, otherwise you'll walk around thinking you're good. You put on the tie and you're going, one second, this doesn't match. I got to get some clothes on. Right? And then he starts to, 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 to be in tune with it. And the Rebbe used a similar point to explain the answer to our question that we're dealing with right now. What what do you mean Torah and mitzvahs are revealed godliness? I don't feel it. True. And that's not what we mean when we say Torah and mitzvahs are revealed godliness. What we mean is different than yourself, they're an actual vehicle into Hashem. And the proof is in the effect that mitzvahs have. Just like the tie has the effect of waking the person up to where he's at the mitzvahs have an effect on a person that ultimately wake him up to his godliness. It's why the Pirkei Yavot says, mitzvah goreret mitzvah, one mitzvah leads to another. It's The nature of things. The Rebbe would always talk about this later when he began the tefillin campaigns and the mitzvah campaigns and people would challenge him, what's the point of a one-off, like what are we doing here? I caught the guy in a restaurant on a Friday afternoon, put on tefillin, tied him up, he won't do it again, who knows? No, it has an effect. The mitzvah will bring along another mitzvah. Or the, 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 um, the Gemara says, when a person learns Torah, there's a debate. If a person becomes an apostate, if we should let him continue studying, or should we just reject him completely? And it says that you let him, you keep, you let him keep going because hama or shabba lemutav, the luminary in the Torah will return him back to good. In other words, there's an essential element of Hashem that's dormant and it's, it's right there lying in the Torah that if you access it, it will wake it up. Versus a guy who doesn't do mitzvahs all his life and just relies on the essence of his soul, there'll never be that, that, that conscious connection. And that's what the Alter Rebbe means to say when he talks about this conversation of Torah and mitzvahs being higher than the soul. He's answering a very core question. Why does my soul need expression? Why does my soul need the Judaism? It needs the Judaism because the Judaism is where Hashem is revealed and could become revealed consciously. But like I said, there's a key twist where it's not just about bringing light from another room into this room, we're already tuned in. It lights up the soul that's already there. It lights up the connection that's already there. I think I've mentioned this before. There's a Zohar actually the source of what I mentioned before, oraita v'kuchabrichu kulachad, Torah and God are all one, it's part of a bigger sentence. The Zohar in its full sentence says, there are three knots that are tied into each other. Jews are connected to Torah, Torah are connected to Hashem, Israel, oraita v'kuchabrichu kulachad, Jews, Torah and Hashem are all one. And it takes a Jew to think of this question. The Zohar says there are three knots three knots. Jews to, Jews to the Torah, Torah to Hashem, that's only two knots. Right? When, when you have three things, one knot to connect the Jews to the Torah, one knot to connect the Torah to Hashem, that's, that's three things tied to each other, not three knots. What's the three knots? So Hasidus says, it's not a line, it's a circle. There's the connection we have to Hashem through the Torah, but then there's the direct knot going between us and Hashem. So it is three knots. It's like the recycling sign. And that's the Altareba saying here. You have that connection to you and Hashem. It's there, but it's sleeping. It's hidden, it's separate, and that's the way it's meant to be. Hashem wanted it to be free will. Hashem wanted it to be a soul that feels separate. And the, 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 the pathway to that is through the other two knots. Go through the Torah and mitzvahs. Access those parts of the physical world that are already apparently godly and use them to wake up your essence. Use them to wake up what it is that's already in your soul. So if we, if we wanted to summarize just this last discussion, what we just said, every Jewish soul's identity is Hashem. That's true. That was chapter 2 and it's clear. However, when it descends, it loses that sense of awareness and it needs the Yiddishkeit, the Torah and Mitzvahs, the garments, these are the soul's expressions, to wake up. First to reveal godliness into its life and then to wake up its own essential essence. Because Jews are inherently godly. We are inherently godly, we just don't know it. And when we do Torah and mitzvahs, we tap into it and that wakes it up. And you know, this ties into a very, very big thing. On the world level. See, we're talking now about on, on the human level. I want to go for a second to the world level. The world talks a lot about revealing godliness. Revealing godliness in the world. Gili Yalokut. And the conventional way of understanding Gilea Lokut, when you say revealing, just the word revealing assumes two things right away. First, it assumes that there's a place that doesn't have this revelation. Right? I have to reveal godliness in this world. So we're automatically assuming the world doesn't have godliness. And that there's an outside source that's going to bring it in. There's somewhere, some being, some ethereal area, some realm where the godliness is there and it's going to come into the world. The Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidus and the Altar Rebbe, really opened up this idea, posed the following question to that premise. He said, if that's how you look at revealing godliness in the world, the world is cold, the world is dead, the world is godless, it's dark, and we have to bring in from a different place then what exactly was keeping the world existing until you brought the godliness in? Hashem created everything, so, so what's, the, what's, what's the, the energy there? What's the life force there? And the Baal Shem Tov therefore said, I want to reframe for you the whole idea of revealing godliness in the world. He said, reveal is different than bring in. Bring in means bringing it in. Revealing means something is here. We just have to uncover it. Now, today, this is conventional Jewish wisdom, but I'll have you know it was radical back then. People did not believe that kind of thing. The world is holy, and we have to just uncover it. The world is distant, the world is fair, the world is, is, is godless. We have to bring in the influence. Let's bring in more mitzvahs, let's bring in more Torah. The Bashamtam and Chasidis came and said no. The world is holy. The grapes are holy. The salmon is holy. The cup and table and chair is holy. Everything is holy. It's us that has to un- that has to uncover it and bring it to the fore. Use it for the right thing. Make the wool into tzitzit, leather into tefillin or mezuzah. The bracha on the salmon. Where's Philip? The altar ebbi in the salmon. It, it, it. This. Yeah. This. This is. This is it. So first in ourselves we're born with the soul that's unaware and we have to reveal it in us but ultimately it's the world that has the same idea Hashem created it gave it the gift of separateness of unawareness and it's the Torah and Mitzvahs that tie it back in and wake it up to its real self and really, really reveal it and one more thing I'm going to conclude with this and we're going to expand on this next week So far we have two dimensions. We have Torah and mitzvahs brings light into my life. And then we have Torah and mitzvahs actually connects me to who I really am. But there's a third dimension. The third dimension is, we can do Torah and mitzvahs a favor. We can bring the Torah, as it were, Closer to Hashem, more than we need Judaism, Judaism needs us. We can we can project, see, because we have the knot directly to Hashem. The other way, it's going through the Torah. The Torah was only Hashem's light, Hashem's revelation, Hashem's ray. When a Jew wakes up to his essence, he carries with it the power and the lights. And the, and the energies of the very Torah and mitzvahs that he, that he fulfilled. We say the word lishma a lot, doing Torah lishma, doing Torah for its own sake, mitzvahs for its own sake. The conventional explanation is no ulterior motives. Do it just for Hashem, just for the connection with Hashem. But the altar ebb will say, lishma means for its sake. Ultimately, a Jew can reach a level where he does Torah and mitzvahs for the Torah and mitzvahs' sake, so that they can achieve the elevation that they need, so that everything becomes fused into the consciousness of the essence of the divine. And so, in this way, we've closed what the, the, the first conversation of the Tanya the makeup of the divine soul. Next week we're gonna talk about a little more Torah and mitzvahs, but it will be outside of the conversation of souls. Now we've basically achieved a fullness. We have a full, as it were, study of the godly soul. We know its essence, we know its body, intellect and emotions, and we know the garments, thinks, speaks, and does, communicates outside of itself, and we know the purpose of that communication the purpose is to wake us up to the essence, to bring us back to the point of our connection where we are one and the same with Hashem.